says, get that India, big boy. Hello and welcome back to another edition of the Tip Sheet Podcast. As always, I'm your host, John, also known as 4020. Joining me to break down all the happenings in the NRL and everything pertaining to the mighty blue and gold is my good mate, 60s. It's been a bit dreary and a bit wet today, mate, but how are you holding up as we record on a midweek session? Mate, I'm feeling good. We're getting closer to the NRL kickoff. Hit that stinger. <laughs> good call, good call. Let's get right into it. And of course, that is the sign that it is time to talk news of the NRL variety, my good man. Let's start with some awful news for the code. The Manly Warringah Seagulls, they've taken out the inaugural preseason challenge. They've pipped the Cronulla Sharks on the uh, rather, in, uh, intrigue is not the right word, but interesting bonus point system. And they are the uh, first ever winners of the $100,000 prize pool. So obviously very good for the Manly Seagulls. Just a terrible day for the code though, mate. Terrible. Oh, we've had some dark days in the NRL. <laughs> <laughs> That's right up there, isn't it? That, that, that Manly's copping an extra 100000 for something. Look, I guess they could have another lick of paint on some bench seats over there at Brookvale Oval, so good luck to them. And, yeah, uh, been interesting looking at some of the news coming out of Manly in, in terms of the shots being fired at Des Hasler more so than anything else. A lot of talk about the young players being given more power to their voices under the uh, new management. Got to see how that plays out in the long term. Sometimes that can be empowering. Sometimes that can be crippling, uh, given that you need to have a balance of uh, you know, power across the different players in those groups. But for Manly, it's been a good start. Obviously, $100,000 in the pocket. I don't know how they're going to split that sort of thing. Does it go to the club? Does it go to the players? Uh, like the uh, JJ Gitlin Shield prize money, which is also exactly $100,000, I believe. It's uh, always interesting to see how the club sort of divvy those out. It'd be nice for it to go to a charity of some sort. Fair shout. I think, I think the clubs individually had worked out something, hadn't they, about what was going to happen, whether there was going to be a, a split with players or the clubs. I don't know what Back Manly's into the junior league is also a good place to put that sort yeah, of uh, yeah. injection. Yeah. Um, so I, hopefully, it's, hopefully it's put to some good use. But, mate, I'm, I'm going to give a little bit of a spoiler, and I'm not – in any way coloured by their pre-season trial form. But I am going to include Manly in my top eight prediction for this year. I don't think that's too unreasonable. There is going to be a few open slots, you'd think, in that sort of five to eight range because there are proven premiership contenders, obviously the reigning champions in the Penrith Panthers, and you've got the likes of the Parramatta Eels, uh, South Sydney. Uh, There's a couple other teams that slot in there. The Sharks and the Cowboys, they've both got good draws with hungry teams. So there's there's obviously some teams that you can sort of pencil in, but I think Manly are right at the front of that pack, chasing down those last few spots in the top eight. Mate, I am a fan. Well, I'm not a fan. Let's just say that a fit Josh Schuster worries me as a oh, as an opposing... All, all the talent in the world. If, if he figures it out, he's going to be a star. But it is a big if. Um, so, oh, it is a big if because... 
he tends to get the rush of blood to the head. Now, whether that was coloured by the genuine lack of fitness that he had before so that he was pushing passes or plays simply because the option, the other option might have been a bit harder physically. I don't know. But if he gets, I think what you're getting at is if he can get his head right. Oh, he will be a superstar, no doubt. Uh, but speaking of Schuster and Manly, they are expected to be about the services of their young star there in the round one clash against the Canterbury Bulldogs. It's a home game for the Seagulls. And it's going to be interesting to see. Well, they're, they're two of the rising teams, aren't they, in terms of uh, who the pundits love in a neutral sense. The Dogs under new management, well, new coaching management with Cameron Serrato, heavy recruitment spree. Did get a bit pants in their last trial, though, uh, against Cronulla. They're going to be looking to start the season strong and manly under new coaching management too. So a lot to see there. But let's get to some actual bad news, as much as we like to meme on the Seagulls. Uh, we'll start with the NRL season launch event, which is being cancelled due uh, somewhat obviously uh, due to lingering tensions between the governing body and the RLPA as they continue, and I use this term extremely loosely at this point, 60s, but as they continue to negotiate a new CBA, uh, not a great look for the game. Um, the fact that they're going to call off what should be a marquee you know, launching point or springboard for the 2023 season. Um, I know it's not going to be the biggest loss in terms of profile for the game, but at this stage, it just looks like both parties are being very petty. Yeah, it's... Mate, how long has this been going on for? It's just... It's ridiculous that we're getting literally to the eve of the Premiership kickoff, and it still hasn't been sorted. There's a part of it that... I, I, you can go ahead and try and, as many people have done, as I've been tempted to do, finger point at one party or another. But my mind also casts back to the some of the last-minute changes that the NRL has brought in to the game. Uh, what was the one last year that literally was the night before the they, Premiership? They overhauled the judiciary the week of... That's the it. season, yeah. the season launch. They completely change the judicial system in terms of how players get charged, what they get charged for, and the process surrounding it. That's it. Yeah, yeah. It, it was absolutely ridiculous. So, all this stuff that happens at the last minute, it's not necessarily a surprise that it's part of the NRL DNA. That it, it's it's almost like, in some senses, they fly by the seat of their pants oh, now. Yeah. Maybe there's, maybe it is truly in their DNA because when you think back, and it's it's got nothing to do with this administration, but when you think that previous administrations, despite years of uh, high uh, income from uh, media deals, that sort of thing, that the 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 game itself, when COVID hit, was at risk of collapsing because there basically wasn't massive reserves or assets that existed mm-hmm. for a game that had been, has been going in Australia since 1908. Now I understand that we can't go back to 1908 to talk about commercial arrangements and having a, having a governing body that is, uh, has has modern governance standards, but 
we're still talking about when COVID hit and Volandi's administration took over, the level of cost cutting that had to happen straight away because there just wasn't the money there to support the game as, as needed to be. Um, it, it feels like there's, were we living hand to mouth? Is that a fair comment that the game was living hand to mouth, like on a weekly basis? Mm-hmm. I don't think that'd be too far out of pocket. Well, maybe not a weekly basis, but a yearly basis. Yeah. That if if you know sponsorships or deals were lost, that the game would have been, you know, could it have survived any any period of time without it? I I, I don't think so. I, I guess we have to really be looking at, and maybe this is the game's own argument against the RLPA, that if they guarantee certain expenditures, that it doesn't allow for them to, I guess, have safety uh, measures in place for their own survival. I I don't know. I mean, I'd, I'd have to be digging into the finances and to be honest... I can't be bothered. Yeah. <laughs> like, really, that's not my job. Is I, I don't feel it's my job to go and look and at what all the finances are. I know there's a lot of people that read TCT that have got on to some of the commentary and have been able to quote figures, and that that's brilliant. They've been able to talk about the level of in, income and expenditure that goes around in the league. But, yeah, I just feel that when we get last... The things happening at the last minute, it just doesn't it doesn't augur well for the professionalism of the game, I no, don't sir. think anyway. No, sir. Yeah, so we have to wait and see. We, it feels like every episode we've been recorded has been maybe a step forwards, followed very quickly by three steps backwards. Um, every time we seem to have brokered common ground, it turns out that the NRL's made an announcement without the express permission or consent of the RLPA, which leads to more war of words in the papers. And yeah, as it stands, we seem to have a framework for the NRLW side of things going forwards, but the actual terminology, it seems to be the overall funding number is not at a point of contention anymore, but how that fund gets distributed in certain ways and covering certain things seems to be the sticking point, so we have to wait and see how that plays out, but good golly, it needed to be done months ago, if not a year ago. So, which is And the the RLPA, they've been, their language that they're using is really that the NRL haven't shown goodwill yeah. in their Not announcements. operating in good faith, essentially, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They, for them to, I guess, make public statements about agreements have been reached when the RLPA hasn't reached agreement, they're probably feeling as if they're trying to put some public pressure on them. Yes. That if there's an announcement made that they feel they have to... Um, that they they have to bow down to what's been announced. But uh, I guess if you are a player, you would be happy with the strength in unity that's been shown with this. For us as supporters, we're probably not happy because that shadow of industrial action is hanging over it. And I've spoken before about as... I think the most important stakeholders in the game are the supporters and you don't want to alienate supporters. And I know, I think Nathan Cleary was quoted as saying that 
having this sort of action is something the players don't want because they know it takes away from the supporters. But if we have to do it, we have to do it. Jeez, you'd, you'd hope that they don't have to do it. Yep. Because as I said, I don't think it I don't think it helps for anyone because you are going to you lose the faith of uh supporters. And there's the game, the players, they're not gonna be winners out of that. And yep. maybe they think they've got the strength that they'll bounce back no matter whether it's a one week industrial action or multi week or whatever the case may be, but they're gonna piss off some supporters. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, indeed. And let's cap off the uh, sequence of bad news with one final report, 60s, as things go from bad to worse for the St. George Illawarra Dragons following their charity shield clash against the South Sydney Rabbitohs where they were trounced. And the final scoreboard reads 42-24, if I'm not mistaken. And the game was not close. Like, that is much closer than it actually was in terms of the first two teams, sorry, the first strings running at each other. <clears throat> but they were com- comprehensively played off the park there. And it followed up with a... What's been described as a heated disagreement or a, a heated argument between uh, Michaela Ravalawa sorry, and Kane, uh, Kane, Zane Musgrove, uh, which I believe involves some police intervention. So it's not a great look for the Dragons who have been in the news for all the wrong reasons for quite a while now. Oh, mate, you'd have to think, you have to think that there is some major cultural issues there within the club. I'm probably not saying anything that any St. George supporter listening to this would argue with because the last thing that they want is for their own playing group to be arguing amongst themselves. They had the situation last year where their annual awards night literally was boycotted by the players where there were reportedly players was it at a casino or something or a pub across the road? across the the bay or across the road in, in the city. Yeah, it, I mean, you, you can only it, laugh at that. It 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 beggars belief whether that was the scheduling of the events and the communication around it for the players, the football department, whether there was a, a an administrative issue there, whether there was um, you know things were booked so they just went ahead even though they knew the players weren't going to be there that's, who that, knows that, you talk about the good faith from the NRL that's a lot of good faith you're expe- extending there oh. to... <laughs> but, but mate like for a start I'm, I mean we don't we don't follow these players closely but I'm looking at the players involved and you go I've never heard of Ravalawa being involved in anything um, On the, the other, other player, hand, yes, the other player involved has a long and, uh, frankly, not very po- like positive history when it comes to these sort of things. Now, we're all for players. I, I Look, I think rugby league is one of the most forgiving codes of football that exists because players are given second chances in it. So often it turns out to be the right thing that players are given a second chance to redeem themselves no matter what what sort of trouble that they've been in in the past. There's great redemption stories throughout the game. But by the same token, if you've got a club where you feel that there are some cultural issues and you make a decision to bring a player into the club who has had recent issues with uh, behaviour or just just the wrong thing happening in some way... Mm -hmm. 
are you asking for trouble? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's a rhetorical question, isn't it? <laughs> oh, God. Uh, yeah, yeah, so terrible look for the Dragons. And we'll have to wait and see if there's going to be any uh, integrity unit blowback on this. But I do believe that uh, there was some plea to the courts to be, what's the word, uh, both expedite the process and show a degree of uh, leniency because they're, they're happy to cooperate and whatnot. So have to wait and see how that plays out. But, yeah, for the Dragons... Just they they are proven that any news is not necessarily good news because yeah they they're just not getting any good press right now and for all like for understandable reasons. Uh, I heard Aaron Woods talking on Triple M yesterday afternoon, not about the incident. They didn't ask him about that incident. They asked him about the game, and hearing his description of defensive sets where he goes, you know, like we'd be good in the first two tackles and then, you know, not so good in the next few tackles and it would allow it, you know, <laughs> which would cause some problems. I'm thinking, man, like, it's uh, look, I don't put any great faith in trials or trial results, but I guess if you've got a team that has a history of not performing particularly well, and they front up the next year and you see aspects of their play which are all about attitude and effort and it looks like it's missing again you as a supporter you're not going to be you're not going to be terribly um, happy going into the first round and, and here's a team that's got blown off the park does any good come from the players going out and getting on the drink nope. like that nope Nope, 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 nope. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a prude. I don't have a problem when the camera goes into a dressing room and the players are enjoying a beer. I don't have a problem with the players getting out and, and, and having a good time, but you just felt like probably the worst thing in the world that could have happened for St. George as a club was for their team to get absolutely smashed in a challenge in their in their charity challenge for them to go out on the drink that night and for it to turn well i think it was asked i think it was asking for trouble at that point so the fact that they ended up with some issues the next morning then it's not a surprise so anyway that's their in, that's their issues yes in the meantime though there's been a flurry of player activity when it comes to signing and re-signing both large and small uh, sort of news breaks there. Let's do. Are we are we put going to put this down because we started off with the bad news? Are we are we going to now lump all the signings as good news for the game? Uh, uh, well, let's let's maybe maybe we could go. Have we got a a way that we could audibly do a thumbs up or a thumbs down about the news? Um, each news. Yeah, how about yeah? About you know like I could we could blow a raspberry or. Um, take Api Coruscant's lead with that, eh? Like, <laughs> when we hear the signing news, because I think when he heard his own his own signing news, what he thought of it last after the grand final last year. So, yeah, so maybe just a yep or a no, that'll do. Uh, let's uh, let's start with probably the most contentious. Uh, we actually went up against a team that fields this young player currently, and I say currently because it's not going to be for much longer. Uh, but per media reports this week, the Roosters have apparently won the chase for young English outside back Dom Young. Pardon the uh, double young there. Uh, with the Roosters securing his services, I don't know for how many years. I can't remember what the report said there, but apparently they've beaten out the Novocastrians 
for his signature. I think Peter Parr came out this week and said that the Newcastle offer was in the vicinity of $2 million over four years, so 500 k per for what must be said is a very good young winger. Dom Young made some huge strides in season 2022 after looking very raw the year prior and certainly could be one of the game's premier flankers in no time. But uh, this feels very much like classic Sydney Roosters, doesn't it, 60s? Well, here's my first response. Nah. Yeah, now, I think, yeah. That's how I feel about the signing. And now, the reason I feel that way about the signing is I can hear the rhetoric coming out now about a player signing for less to be able to play at the Roosters. Yeah. Look, and then when they come off contract, they're on $800,000 and it's freeing up all the cap space in the world. It's the... Uh, the, the classic one-two punch, I suppose. Yeah. I guess from a Roosters roster perspective, if you're Daniel Tupu, you're not feeling terribly good right now because you have probably had your um, retirement papers stamped, stamped and yeah. signed and and uh, mailed to you already because... He's going. He's thirty-two this year. We talked about that before. He's um, Daniel Tupu, so yes, from their perspective, they've picked up one of the best rising wingers in the game to replace someone who they've obviously marked then as ready to retire. They've got Suali'i on the other wing. They've still got Tedesco at fullback. Now we know Suali'i's going to be on good coin. Uh, Dominic Young should be on massive coin if he's rejected half a million a year to sign with the Roosters, although he'll probably they'll probably tell us he's signed for 300000 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Tedesco, we know, is on massive coin to be at the Roosters, so their back three, that's a that's significant investment in that back three. Sam Walker took a big pay upgrade recently too, so those things add up, and we know that a cap increase is coming eventually once the CBA is renegotiated, should that ever happen. But yeah, I mean, it just it feels like classic Sydney Roosters where they're able to sign an absolute barrage of top-tier talent, especially after getting the likes of Brandon Smith too, to join them by way of the Melbourne Storm. Uh, and yeah, they let go of some journeymen and, you know, not fringe players, but, you know, the likes of Daniel Tupo, who we, we are told when they re-sign, re-sign for unders. Not, you know, they, they, they staved off offers from other clubs that were way better, but they stayed for unders because they like playing at the Roosters, and yet somehow it always adds up. So, yeah, I mean, classic tricolors there. We had the uh, the boo and the, the thumbs down coming there. Some more Roosters news, though. Uh, Victor Radley set to ink a four-year extension of his own uh, per media reports this week. I think they were trying to build as being a rooster for life, but he's only 24 years of age, if I, if I recall correctly, so it's not a, certainly not a four-life contract, or at least as we know it. Yeah, he he's one of those players that I guess every club hates to play against, mainly because he competes so much and he's he's right on that cusp of always looking like he's about to do something that's about to get him in trouble. He's, get himself in trouble, isn't it? What what probably rubs me the wrong way of Radley is that he is obviously a good player, but he's spoken of as if he's a great player. And yes and like you said, he's a player you hate to play against because he can be so impactful, both the grubbiness and just the, the sheer violence that he plays with, which is fantastic. Uh, we got a lot of that at Ray Stone. He was, in a way, our Victor Radley in that regard, a guy that could turn games 
with his ability to hit and stick and, and be that guy. But there is a huge difference between how Ray Stone was treated by the media and how Radley was treated by the media, even though they were fairly similar players. Um, yes. And Radley obviously had played more minutes and was used as a ball player too. But like I said, he's a good player, not a great player, but he's not spoken about it in that way. So this is an upgrade that's coming? This is an upgrade coming, so more magical cap space, uh, I'm sure. But uh, the, uh, yay, yay, on, yay or nay on this one, mate? You know, given that he's a, a long-term rooster, I'm going to say yay, but I'm also <laughs> going to throw in off to the side, I'd have a, a, a little, um, uh, not, not a... Not an emoji. I'm just trying to think of the um, the right word. I, I want to have a, a picture of the urban sombrero <laughs> beside my comments yeah, okay. because I think that's what we're getting to with the roosters. It's not an ordinary sombrero. No. It's the it is the urban sombrero, it's, and I suppose it's being shared by the Canterbury Bulldogs at the moment too, who have been just unrivaled in their spending spree. So, a couple of clubs either working with some of the best TPAs you ever see. Or being very creative in how they approach the cap, which there is a history of that in the NRL. Parramatta involved too, not not denying our involvement in that regard too. We've taken oh, mate, we just that. didn't do it particularly well, did we? <laughs> yeah, it did a terrible <laughs> job of it. Uh, let's let's, was, uh, let's face it, we were bloody awful at yeah, it. Yeah, let's uh, let's move on now with more re-signing news. We're, Over, almost, we're almost salty about how well other teams can yeah, do it. Yes, exactly. Uh, but yeah, moving further west now, uh, over to Tiger Town. Uh, obviously, they've been in the hunt for a couple of big name contracts. They got, oh, I mean, they got a couple of guys to to resign, I suppose. Uh, Adam Dewey, despite protest uh, protesting very much quite loudly in the media about how the Tigers haven't been uh, sort of not treating him well, but like playing him where he wants to play over the last twelve months, he's re up with them for two years. With reports that Luke Brooks is set to follow on a similar sort of contract for over two years at Tiger Town. Uh, are you happy if you're a Tigers fan? Are you happy with this sixties? Am I am I going to be happy about Luke Brooks if I'm a Tigers supporter? I don't think I have to think too hard about that. Anyone that's had a look at the Tigers forums in the past about Luke Brooks, I know it's look. You don't like to rubbish a player, but he's not popular. It doesn't seem to be terribly popular with supporters. I guess due to the his tenure at the club and the lack of success around him. I sincerely, at, at this point, want to see a separation between the two parties just to see if it, if it is Luke Brooks who was at the heart of the problems when it came to the spine for the Tigers or if in a different environment can he thrive and perhaps get back to being the sort of, I know I say prospect because he's in well, well and true into his advanced years as an NRL playmaker now, but... Can he get back to some of the the luster that was on his career as a young rookie? You know, can he get back to being a, a top eight contending halfback? And I think it would it would have been good for both parties to go their separate ways, but for whatever reason, the toxic relationship is set to continue, and I don't think it's going to work out well for either of them. Yeah, I I I'm still in two minds as well about Dwahi. I think he's got some genuine talent. I'm not sure whether his relationship with the Tigers as a player will maybe relate. Yeah, I, I still say relationship because he's been known to speak out 
a bit here and there. Mm-hmm. And there's been there's so there's been some flack around him within the club. But yeah, I I don't know whether he's at the right club for his playing to thrive. Maybe under a different coach with the sort of football that the 2005 football that Tim Sheens evidently wants the team to play, whether that's it's, necessarily going to work. It is a matter. vastly different metagame in NRL to 2005, oh. though. Like, it's, yeah. like, it's like saying, let's be the 0-1 Eels and dominate by just running on a dummy half really aggressively. You know, yeah. It, things have changed massively in terms of rule interpretations, the way teams approach both offense and defense. So, yeah. I mean... I don't know. I, I don't. I don't want to rag on the Tigers too much here, but I feel like in the case of Brooks and them, it would have been better for both parties to go different ways. Uh, yep. And for Adam uh, Dewey or Dwahi, well, he, I suppose he gets his wish to play in the halves this year because they picked him over Jackson Hastings, and he's set to play five eighth. But like you said, uh, maybe a different copy would go better. And I'm not convinced he's much of a his best position is in the halves necessarily. So. Have to wait and see how that plays out, but yeah, I'm not. I'm not convinced either. And the thing is, if the Tigers had secured Mitch Moses, where would that have left? Like, it, you're not going to get like three into two spots. No, someone's going to be unhappy. Someone's going to be. Yeah, someone's going to be unhappy. Mitch Moses will get first pick of what position he wants to play there, because you know you, you'll be signing him for a, the biggest contract in the NRL. Uh, given what they'd sort of been talked about to be negotiating with. But, yeah, I suppose that leads us nicely into what we should be discussing the headline news this week for. But for the Tiger 60s, I don't know. It's it's more of the same. That's not what a team where they're at needs. So, I don't know. I'm going to – I'm gonna if I say, yep, I would be doing so with a hint of sarcasm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You'd be doing it so, as an opposition Here we fan. go. I'll see if I can get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, yeah. from the peanut gallery. Okay. And that brings us to the headline news, the one that pertains to the blonde gold. Uh, we did speak about the fact that the Tigers had a very lucrative offer on the table for Mitchell Moses, but this isn't signed and, dealed yet, or signed and sealed yet. But per a Michael Chamis report, late yesterday, 60s, uh, which has been amended to reflect the fact that it's been agreed upon but not necessarily inked proper. Uh, but Mitchell Moses has indicated to the club, apparently, that he is going to agree to a new four-year extension worth $1.25 million a season, which I'm not sure makes him the most highly paid player in the game given you've got the David Fafita contract still going around for a year plus DCEs on a percentage-based contract over at Manly. But it is um, what amounts to a market resetting contract at the playmaking position of halfback, which is the most important in the code. Moses being a top, in my opinion, a top two halfback in the code behind only Nathan Cleary, which means that when it comes to renegotiations, there is that sort of room to reset the market. Even if he isn't the best halfback, he's the best halfback available, which is important in the context of a free market. Uh, But it's a lot of money. The cap is also expected to go up by some some portion, uh, rumoured to be in the vicinity of 13.5 million, I believe, was the number talked about amidst all the stalling and, and arguing going on between the NRL and the RLPA. Uh, but if this does go through, it's obviously an important moment, milestone, you know, sort of line-in-the-sand deal for the Eels. Yeah, and I guess one of the things... Look, you've mentioned as well that 
it's not official. Parramatta have, have been have actually pointed out that nothing's been signed as yet. Yeah. Nothing has been leaking out of the eels with regard to this. People sent are constantly messaging yeah. me. This this is the first thing that would be close to a leak in terms of the Chamis report that uh, there has at least been an agreement in principle. Uh, it, it's the first time we've actually heard anything that would be close to a leak. So speaks towards the sort of ship that O'Neill and Arthur are running in terms of their negotiations uh, as, a, as a matter of respect towards uh, the player and the player manager in that regard. Uh, Wasn't it, it? Didn't he quote that the source insisted on anonymity? Yes. Because uh, yeah, I imagine you'd be, you'd, there'd be some consequences if they found out who it was. <laughs> yeah, uh, so I, I guess what I look at around this, because... As I said, people have been messaging me for a long time and I've just been saying, look, nothing's leaking out of Parramatta. My gut my gut feeling was that Moses was going to stay. Mm-hmm. That was that was what I said to people. But I also said, look, honestly, I don't I don't know because it's been such a roller coaster ride that one moment he's he's all set to sign, the next he's all set to leave, and it's and I don't know where whether that's come from his his player agent, whether it's come from uh, rumours that ha- that are not based in anything, whether it's come from the West Tigers, I just don't know. But um, that's the um, yeah, that's the problem is that we just don't know. So um, I guess as far as I'm concerned, it's what I've seen is what's around it. Um, it's it's been there's been positivity around him now what i mean by that is i've said before he's trained well you you've mentioned multiple times that this is probably the best preseason you've seen out of mitchell yep uh he had a he had a great trial performance he sure he sure did yeah <laughs> a 2040 a scintillating try assist uh just you know playing all over the newcastle knights and really schooling Callum ponga in uh, yes. the head to head duel there Yep. Uh, I've also said that, well, not not what I've said, but BA felt comfortable enough as he it was mentioned on the yeah, Fox Yeah, to crack, crack a rare joke. Yes. Yeah, yeah that he, Brad, he, Brad he, Arthur on national TV, cracking a joke. <laughs> yeah, saying that he's going to put Mitch Moses on the spot in the dressing room to say has he got an announcement, which he evidently did. So <laughs> it's... You just get the feeling that there's there's a good vibe around it. You've seen when the players have been asked, the, the likes of Gutho and Dylan Brown, they've had a smile on their face talking about it. They haven't looked like they're too concerned. Not not that they necessarily show any concern if he if they felt that he was going, uh, but you know it just it just didn't feel like. He was about to depart the club. Now, I can't say that this is all signed, sealed and delivered in any way, but I just think the news that came through fits the jigsaw pieces mm-hmm. that we've had so far. So, yeah. And, and obviously we're going to wait to make it official, but it bodes well for the Eels. It puts us in a great spot in terms of succession planning, gives us incredible continuity in arguably the best, if not one of the best, spines in the NRL between Moses, Dill, Gufferson and now Josh Hodgson. Uh, we have a, a pathway now to sort of push young talent like Ethan Sanders without rushing them. 
So Sanders can now develop at his own pace through the ball into the flag, into the cup over the next few years uh, and potentially be the man to replace Moses down the path. And that's a, yes. a, a lot of water to flow under that bridge in particular, but it means that there is no need to uh, disadvantage a player by accelerating their development beyond where they need to be, essentially. So yes. that that's a good thing for the Eels all around. And then, you know, it's not just young Ethan too. There's a whole stack of young players that are going to benefit from having Moses been at the club that provides stability at the very highest position at half, and they're going to have to you know, play underneath that until then, which is good. And I think that's a, a cap on the news. And obviously, Sixties, if we're talking about Mitch resigning, it's a, a, a really solid woohoo like that. Uh, doesn't get much better. Obviously, the 1.25, sort of, it can be a bit eye-watering, but the, uh, that's a reality of the salary cap era. The best players reset the market, and with a very, very stiff competition from the Tigers and the Bulldogs driving his price up, in this case, the Eels had to sort of come to meet him in the middle ground there. And it's one of those things, too, where the Eels, over the recent years, have not really had too many contract outliers. No. It, it was, a, in terms of the cap, it was about as balanced as any team could be because the players were on, you know, there's a collection of players that were on very good money, but we didn't have anyone who was on the superstar level money. And the reality is that we've got a couple of players there who were very popular on the market when they became available in both Moses and Brown. And so the Eels have had to fork out probably more than they would have liked to because market prices have dictated that that's what they've had to pay a player who, and, and look, people might go on and say that, for some reason that the Eels did not develop Mitch Moses, the contention would surely be that Mitch Moses has become that elite player that he is yeah, now as, as by virtue of thinking with the Eels. And, and we go back now to 2017 to when he linked with the Eels. So this is, what, his seventh season as a Parramatta Eel. And he's he's coming into his best form in these last couple of years at the club. He's become a much more consistent player. The metric, he's become, I was going to say, the metric I always use for this 60s is if he retires tomorrow, what's he remembered as? And it's going to be a Parramatta reel. So obviously yeah. he's, we don't want him to retire tomorrow with a potential four-year extension uh, in the books or on the books. But yeah, he, he very much went to the next level as an eel. And it should be, to close it off, it should be a reminder that Pretty much all player managers, all players, all clubs, given what we've seen recently, are negotiating very much of that new salary cap in mind with that projection of over $13 million in the bank in a given year for a club. You see Jeremiah Nanai getting re-signed for you know, $900,000. You're getting wingers uh, comfortably over $500,000. So everyone's operating under that assumption now. So no surprise that Mitch resets the market, potentially, uh, assuming that yeah. this does get made official. But And, and just very quickly, talking about halfbacks who who are the bright young halfbacks that are actually at NRL level right now uh, it's we, we always hear about who, who's going to be the next big thing but the ones that have actually performed I think after a rocky start young Ilias at South Sydney I think he's sort of found his feet in the NRL after that you've got what Hughes is a seasoned veteran at the Storm 
the Warriors have Sean Johnson. The Knights have who's in the halves with uh, uh, Jackson Hastings. So he's no uh, spring chicken himself. Panthers got Cleary, obviously the benchmark. Still very young. Uh, Broncos have Adam Reynolds, who's a season campaigner. Seagulls have DCE, who's a season campaigner. Bulldogs have Kyle Flanagan, which you know is definitely a weakness in their team. There, the Cowboys do have one of the young ones uh, in Tom Dearden. Uh, Raiders, I don't even know who, who is the halfback for the Raiders. I'm having an absolute brain fade here. Is it uh, Fogarty, right? Yes, Fogarty, who's not young. Uh, the Sharks. They've got Nico Hines. Nico Hines, who is he's relatively young. He's youngish. So he probably bought it's, it's Hines and Ilias so far and Dearden. Uh, Roosters have Walker, but he is very mercurial right now. Uh, I, I still think he has to prove himself, but you can probably throw him in that group. And that, that's really it because the Titans have Sexton, but he, he struggled last year. He needs to prove himself in 2023. Yeah, there, there is not a huge group of young halfbacks really saying we're the next generation we're better than Cleary, we're better than Moses. Yeah, yeah. So I'll just point that out too as, as basically a reason why it's a position that normally attracts some of the highest money at any club because... It's the quarterback those, of the rugby league. It's the guy that handles the ball in the biggest situations more than any other spot. Yeah. So when you're looking at players in that position and you've got the player that's arguably ranked as number two in uh, in the NRL as a halfback. And look, there's going to be plenty of West Tigers supporters that will put on the salty face in uh, arguing There's against been that. a lot of uh, scrubbing of Comet history uh, multiple times on the Mitch Mojo saga from hating him initially to, oh, I love him back, to hate him again. <laughs> so as they sort of reconcile with themselves, you know, getting him back and then not getting him back. Yeah, so I, I guess if if I was thinking what the ideal price for Mitch Moses would be, it would have come in at about one one point one maximum. But I I sit comfortably with them off, you know, having to pay him around that one point two mark, simply because the market has forced it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I use that example of the other halves that are running around that are all probably getting quite good money but are not in the same class and then you look and think who are the upcoming halves and there's not a great deal that are out there I mean it is a really I think halfbacks are a really scarce resource and it's it's why you should you're talking about junior development for any club you can't have all your eggs in one basket when it comes to a harvest prospect you should be reloading constantly with young playmakers because odds are against all these young playmakers that they end up becoming plus plus NRL playmakers. Yeah. You know, so yeah. obviously we're very high on young Ethan Sanders, uh, but there is a, a long way to go till he proves that he is an NRL uh, high upside NRL playmaker. So that's why you have other play, other players in those development positions too, to make sure that you're not, you know, going to be all in on one young player and have a backfire. Uh, absolutely. And whilst we were, impressed with how Ethan went in the uh, in Jersey flag last year he was damn near the if he wasn't exactly the player of the year and did he win I think he won the player of the year didn't he for the Jersey flag but he he was certainly 
right up there as the stars of the Jersey flag. He's done the NRL preseason. He's had, he's got that background of someone that is on the rise, like really on the rise when you look at that. But he started this year as the SG ball halfback, which puts, and, and that's because he is young enough to be playing SG ball. Now, what that does is that puts into perspective where a player might sit in terms of being ready to go into the NRL. Yeah. So I would imagine he's at some point he's going to jump back up to the Jersey flag when that competition starts. But if you're talking about a player that's alternating between SG ball and Jersey flag, then you're talking about someone who is a couple of years at least away from being making their NRL debut. And, um, and I guess for someone like Ethan Sanders, he's now sitting behind two halves who have just signed, or one is rumoured to have signed a long-term deal. The other has got one that's got uh, multiple options options in it that could keep him at the club for, what, another nine years. So it's um, it's an interesting position that someone like him is in. And uh, I guess it'll be interesting to see what happens because yeah. we you can never tell what happens in the future of a no, club. Obviously, you'd like to keep all your young playmakers there. And there is a strong argument for them to to sit behind these established playmakers into their early 20s. We're not talking late into their early 20s, but you know, 21, 22, and get a chance to play some senior football and develop there before being rushed into the NRL. Because how many young playmakers make that debut at 18, 19, 20, and they have flashes, but they just can't keep up with the physicality of first grade. And, you know, players like Dylan Brown are the exception, not the, oh, uh, yeah, not the rule. So, yeah, this, this is, a, and that's the battle that clubs have with players, young stars, because obviously young stars want to play first grade. Um, but, yeah, that's, I, I'd argue it's now a good situation for all parties involved at the club. Uh, but, like you said, a lot can change there. Yeah. All right, let's talk some football after the news there, mate. Uh, we did do an instant reaction to the NRL trial that occurred on the weekend. Uh, and that one was a good breakdown. Obviously, the only negative really being the injury to Sean Lane has been confirmed to be a fractured jaw looking in the vicinity of four to six weeks. Although I did see a, a specialist from England. I don't know who tagged him, but they were talking how uh, he's had players playing rugby union get back in one to two weeks from broken jaws, uh, which I suppose for a big game is a different matter. But if you're talking a long and grinding and attrition sort of inflicting season, you're not rushing Sean Lane back in a couple of weeks. I can't imagine any player coming back from a broken jaw in one to two weeks. Like you, you must be talking about the smallest hairline fracture. Uh, uh, yeah. That, I sort of was surprised reading that tweet. But, yeah, like I said, if it was the grand final, maybe, you know, you, you can sort of get uh, medicated up and have it widen the place some way, somehow, that it's not going to make it that much worse. But, good Lord, you've you got to let that stuff heal. Oh. Yeah, it's. Um, I regard that sort of feedback as, you know, it's it's fanciful. <laughs> it's it's uh, fantasy land, yeah. really, isn't it? But uh, while uh, our boys went to Newcastle to the Central Coast Drive to take on the Knights on Friday, our junior reps made a road trip to the Gong. They went on the road to Wollongong to take on the Illawarra Steelers and all three grades. Emerged from the day undefeated, but it wasn't three victories. Uh, two wins and a draw on the docket for the Parramatta Eels and what must be said was a very successful road trip. Uh, keeps all three grades right in the hunt in their respective competitions. Let's start with the Tasha Gale 60s. The lone draw on the day, 
they actually stole this one in the dying seconds in a 10 all finish, scoring with the uh, or scoring to bring the margin within two as the buzzer rang, setting it up for Alicia Bell to be the hero in the clutch with a conversion to take the game to a draw. Uh, we didn't get to see this one live, but you had a chance to review the tape. Uh, what were your takeaways here, mate? It was it was a very physical game, that's for certain. I think our Tasha Gale girls, as soon as they start fully believing in what they are capable of, they are going to be so much harder for opposition teams to beat. Now, I want to draw people's attention to the last play of the game. So we're we're in we're in the last seconds, not the last play, the last set of the game, just as an example. So they're in that final minute. They've got a scrum on their own 10-metre line. And this is how it unfolded. They had uh, a great carry from uh, Peden, I think it was, on the left-hand side of the scrum, off off the scrum. So she's carried the ball up to, I think, about the 30-metre line from memory. Then there were two hit-ups by forwards to centre the play, and they got up to about the halfway line. The ball was then shifted on the next play. So that's the, the fourth play. They've gone to the right with their backs and the ball has ended up out with Haley Bell and she's got a bit of space down that right-hand wing, but she does what good wing has needed to do there. She comes in a little bit infield. She gets an offload away. And then uh, the ball comes back to her on the return pass. So she's tackled on around about that quarter line. From the dummy half, the ball is then thrown in field um, to Alicia Bell, who's then hoisted the kick into the end goals. Now, the composure that they've had, this is the best set of six that they've had in the in the entire game, and they pulled it out on the last set of the game. In a, in a must-have situation, yeah. In must-have, right? So the ball's been hoisted, and it lands in the end goal, and it takes like a right-hand turn to the left. And all of the players, even the Parramatta players, had come in field towards where the ball was landing. So you've then got all the players running across the end goal looking to dive on the ball. It was a Parramatta uh, replacement winger, Vave, that got there first and grounded the ball. Now, she's grounded it just inside the touch in goal line, which then means they're 10-8 down, siren's gone, and it then falls back to Alicia Bell to kick the goal from the sideline after the siren. All the players have been told, you know, siren's gone. You can hear, but it's very clear on the on the tape, all the communication between the refs and the touch judges, which was a great in, it's a great insight as to what happens at junior rugby league as well. Um, the they they coach each other through the game, the yeah. touch judges and the and the referee. Uh, so it's a genuine genuine teams of uh, officials out there. Anyway, we've seen her nail kicks from out wide before, but it was breezy conditions down there and she just nails it from the sideline. And uh, I'm, I'm sure she doesn't mind me saying this as well, but she let me know that she'd practiced a few of those and uh, at training and hadn't been successful. 
with them. So to come out and then nail it, the clutch gene, the clutch gene. Yes, yeah. And the thing is, she is such a good kicker that we know she is going to kick goals like that in the future. Yep. But like all goal kickers, she'll miss goals that are easier. It's mm-hmm. just the nature of the of of being a goal kicker. You're gonna you're gonna nail some rippers. You're going to miss some ones that you would have that you'd be dirty on yourself for missing. I mean, we've seen Mitch Moses miss kicks from near in front. Um, pointing in, in with that is that uh, that goal against South. Yes, in the in the finals the 20, match that hit 21, the post. Yeah, twenty twenty one finals. Yeah, um, there's been some of the greats of the game that have missed kicks from near in front. Mick Cronin missed plenty from close to the posts. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, to nail that, mate, that ner- talk about nerves of steel. So, I hope that the girls get a lot of confidence from that. Uh, they, I'm trying to think who they play this week. The the boys are playing St George Dragons. I believe, I believe they've got the Bears. The that's it. It is. Ago. It is the Bears. Yeah, it is the Bears. So anyone that wants to uh, get up to Kellyville earlier this week, they're on at 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock start, yep. so, yeah. So do get up there and watch that. Um, now, <laughs> moving on to the Harold Mats. Yeah. And this team... <laughs> on on surface value, they outmuscled the Steelers 22 to 10 and, and what statistically looked like their best performance of the season thus far. Um, I know you you covered this one for the Parareels on the website. Uh, Zadis Mwanga to Tia started with a try and a couple of assists to his name while Dom Ferruja was class on the wing. Uh, but were, were they their own worst enemies again or was it improved in that regard? Look, it's... They they struggled probably for the first 15 minutes to complete a set. And, Unfortunately, not too familiar, yeah. But it's it was a whole range of things. It was... Whether it was a, it might have been a drop ball, it might have been a stray pass, it might have been the last tackle going out, last kick, last tackle kick going out on the full, it might have been having the ball stolen one on one. There was a raft of different ways that the set completion didn't happen, but it didn't happen, as I said, for about the first fifteen minutes of the game, and it was extraordinary to watch because they are so physically dominant over their opposition like they they love the collision as a team like they really go out there to win the collision and when you see that they hurt the opposition when they tackle and when they're carrying the ball they make extraordinary meters in their sets of six but they but they just have long periods where they don't get to finish their set of six Mm -hmm. for whatever reason so that keep that tends to keep the opposition in the match. Now, the Illawarra side were actually quite a good side. And, uh, yeah, it was... The, so the Eels ended up with their first try where the Steelers went for a charge down on, on around about... I think it was pretty close to the halfway line. And uh, the Eels got the bounce off that. Lockie Kanikas got it. And uh, the Bulls ultimately ended up uh, with uh, Zaitis, who's, uh, who's scored the try. Um, but, uh, and then, and then again, from all of the, all of the physical collisions, their next try came off a kick and it was again, almost right on the bell where they've put up a ball into the, into the 20 meter area and the Steelers have allowed it to bounce 
and again it's taken a near right right hand turn and it's bounced out to uh Rokosuka, who's just head for the corner and playing it down in the corner um in between that illawarra got a try that just was it just seemed so against the run of play they finally got up into the Parramatta 20 meter line and it was just a crash ball and they're mm-hmm. over and you you can bet like the coach would have you know Chris Howell would have been Ruffable. filthy yeah. on, on a on a try that was conceded so easily, given how physical they were all through it. And they barely let the Illawarra Steelers get anywhere near attacking them. But second half, yeah, it looked <laughs> the next Illawarra try, it it literally all it took would have been for um the player to hold the hold the ball or and get the pass away and Parramatta score. Instead, the ball's dropped, and the Illawarra uh, winger ran ninety-five meters mm-hmm. to score. So, like, it was it was it was like that at least an eight-point turnaround. Um, but I guess that's the that's the nature of it. Do I want them to not chance their hands like they do? Because it's it's like a lot of the errors come from maybe a pass that you think that ultimately gets dropped when they're when they're really building something. But then I think to myself, no, the pass was on. You can't haul them. You can't rein them in on place like that. They just got to get execution. better. Yeah. Yeah. At the execution, because the, the, the instincts are there and the opportunities are there. Absolutely. But Ab- absolutely. The, yeah. The actual executions letting themselves down a bit. Yeah. They're creating the opportunities with it. And, uh, but yeah, you mentioned Zadis. Um, he, he certainly went, he had great faith in Don Ferrugia with the next play because he just, from the play of the ball, he just he decided he'd just go right from the from the dummy half out to out to Dom and Dom had a couple of blokes in front of him and basically physically shrugged them off himself to get the ball down and then in the next one when they uh, the play got um, the uh, Parramatta's forwards were really starting to win control by this late stage like it, they were really cutting a sway through Illawarra, but the ball got up to the quarter line. Um, Zaitis has taken off from dummy half. He's he's literally got through almost to the fullback, and then uh, you've had Corey Lee backing up in support, and As he's just thrown the pass to Lee, yep. bang, under the post. So um, that was that was a real clinical finish to the game. And, and it's probably an example of they might, try that they might put that play on which they'll score like that and then it might be another play and I'm not saying that this player would put it down but you might have a uh, the same play happens and it, and the pass gets dropped and you go should they go for the play yes they should it's on they you know that's exactly what they need to do to create those opportunities so look I just think maybe it's a case of early season you know not quite executing as you should and and if you if you get the wins that's not an issue. Now, the, of course, the problem was they completed so badly in the first game against the Roosters and they lost that game up on the Central Coast. And they were about a 12 to 18 point better team that day. I came away from that game thinking, I don't know how, how they lost that. They were so all over the Roosters and it was only Zach Fittler that had a couple of key moments mm-hmm. for the Roosters that really kept them in the game. And I'm talking about kept them in the game, let alone winning. So, um, yeah. 
Anyway, look, I think they they're now two from three. Yes, they've got to, They have to keep the ball rolling. They can't go two from four. Yeah, they, they're it. playing the Dragons this week up at Kellyville, so everyone get up there. And finally, eleven tries in the SG ball game. Yeah, mate. high scoring game here with goal kicking being a huge point of difference between the two rosters. Uh, but the SG ball did roll on for their third consecutive victory from three starts in 2023. 36 to 20 road win over the Steelers in Wollongong. Uh, like we said, goal kicking being a huge point of difference there. Ethan Sanders, very, uh, very clean off the tee in this particular game. Uh, per your, uh, your match report, Matty Arthur, Ethan Sanders stamped their class. Cody Perry continued his scoring rampage. I think it's eight tries from three games now. Uh, but yeah, very, was it six tries to five in, like I said, an 11 try contest? Uh, how good were the Eels in this one, though, mate? Again, it was the that first the first fifteen minutes, mate. It would have been fun to watch you try to keep even <laughs> like I couldn't have kept up blogging. Just with try it. after try, big play after big yeah. play. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was. I think about four tries in the first fifteen minutes from Parramatta. It was just like they they scored off their first possession. Because um, Arthur and Tuavadi absolutely smashed the Illawarra ball runner, forced an error, and from the scrum, they've just worked the play down the the left hand side out to Parry to score, and that was their first use of the ball in the game, and uh, it, it just continued on from that. I think straight after that was another try by um, Cody Parry, and. And it was again just shift out to the left, and uh, but with this one, <laughs> Barry he wouldn't have scored an easy try, easier try. He just had to stroll, like he caught the ball and strolled over the line. It was just, um, it just was too easy. Um, but what happened after that, mate? If you were the Illawarra coach, you'd be going insane. Their next three kickoffs of Parramatta tries all went out over the dead ball line on the full. Like three identical kicks. It was phenomenal. That's uh, one, one of them is enough to make a coach really rip into the lads or ladies, depending on the grade. If you're doing it three in a row, though, good Lord, you wouldn't want to be there either on the sideline on the day or on the uh, match review following the weekend. Yeah, well, look, from the first one, it just gave Parramatta an opportunity to do what they did uh, in one of the earlier matches they took the tap and passed the ball across the line from the tap from one wing to the other and just created space down the opposite wing and scored. So that was uh, Muhammad Alamadine's try for, was from that. Um, then the next one was uh, they got the ball up to into the court. This is, again, Parramatta gets the penalty. They're straight back on the attack. Uh, Matty Arthur takes a run out of dummy... Uh, takes the pass out of dummy half, just cuts out. I can't remember who he cut out, but the ball ended up with Charlie Geimer, who was in under the post. And it was only fortunate that the next one, that uh, Parramatta didn't actually score off the next penalty that they got. And that seemed to stem the flow of points. And uh, Illawarra, I think they got a, they might have got some back-to-back penalties in that set and ended up going down and scoring themselves. But then it was unusual because there was no no scoring for that next 15 minutes of the first half. And boy, didn't they make up for it in the second half. The, mm-hmm. the Steelers were allowed to score far too many tries. They ended up adding four of their own in the second half, none converted. 
and that's really what kept it tight. They they were very very close to to making it an, another try in that passage where they they scored the last three tries of the game. It could have been the last four tries of the game, only that um, Arpa Twidal came up with a a good tackle when the line was broken. And I, I mean, the bloke was streaking away towards him and he, he brought him down. And then uh, a kick came not long after that and he beat every other runner to the ball in the end goal and actually beat a high tackle to get out into the field of play. And that was really going to be crucial because if he had have got caught in the end goal, I reckon the pressure was really on and we just weren't numbering up on the left. Virtually every try that the Steelers scored was by exposing... Parramatta's right side defence. Uh, we were just seemed to be jamming in uh, far too much and giving them a saloon passage on their left hand side. It was like the winger scored three tries in very quick succession mm-hmm. on that left on that left side. Um, you mentioned the the players. Matt Arthur was outstanding in the in that match. He was he was probably up there as the as the player of the match. Uh, he's he's been he scored tries in his first two games. He was setting them up in this one. Um, you mentioned Parry, another double, so he's up to eight tries for the year. The back line was on that left side was very effective going from, and it's quite often you you're seeing uh, Arthur packing in at lock, picking up the ball from scrums on the um, feeding it to Sanders, then normally Twiddle joins in and the ball then out to parry. And uh, sometimes it might go through the centre, who on that side previously was Richard Penasini. But uh, we had, um, trying to think of the name of the uh, of the winger that filled in. Uh, the, um, was it? Uh, it was um, pa- Palu, was it? Palu, Palu, I think you're right. SG ball, yeah. round three. Hmm. We had team list, uh, Tivaka Palu, yeah. Yeah, it is Palu, yep, yep, yep. So uh, my apologies there if I pronounced it the wrong way. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it's either gone to, to him or he's been cut out. But anyway, the ball ends up with uh, Cody Parry and yeah, we've got two tries just through just through that play, those sorts of plays. So it's obviously a, a favourite of theirs. I was really impressed with Sam Tuivati. He performed really well. But, mate, Dom Destratus, gee, he was he was unlucky uh, the previous week. He had an injury. And I don't know whether he'd been named on the bench because of injury or whether it was just because Saxon Pryke had been uh, named to return and they brought him back through the back row rather than a prop. As it turned out, Dom didn't play because of a sternum injury, and his his twin brother Raf played and and played a really strong game as well, or a very similar game to Dom. Um, but he is just such a consistent, mm-hmm. strong player. He's a real competitor. He's like, the sort of player coaches love too because he does all the one percent, and he's always on the ball, always pushing up, always creating pressure. Absolutely, absolutely, and. And look, I think because of those sorts of qualities, I, I mean, you don't like to make a call on this, but he's the sort of player with that with that attitude 
that you can see him becoming an NRL, making it to the NRL. Um, I don't disagree. And, yeah. but yeah, and that's that's a that's a and look, there's a long way from SG Ball to NRL, but if you're talking about the sort of qualities of a player that would get them there, he seems to have that sort of right attitude. So um, I'd, I'd like to think he'll be a player who will forge a career in first grade. But I guess we a lot of, a lot of water can go under the bridge through the lower grades. So we don't know. But... Yeah, he, he's very, he's very promising really tangibles there. That's exactly what coaches love to see. And it's the sort of thing that can separate you in a near tiebreaker situation from another talented prospect. You know, the guy or girl that does those one percenters, that creates all that extra pressure, that does all the off the ball and on the ball work. It doesn't get missed by coaches. Absolutely. So Absolutely. At the conclusion of three rounds, 60s, our Tush Gal sit in eighth place with one win, one loss, and a draw to their name. No surprises here, but the Roosters Indigenous Academy leads that competition with three wins and a positive differential of 82. Uh, the girls have teams with... How many wins have we got here? The Bears have zero wins or ahead of us because they had a bye. That's uh, interesting. Uh, okay, so the there is uh, teams with one win ahead of them all the way up to the third-place Steelers. So uh, they've still got plenty of uh, chances to make up ground in that regard then. Just got to keep winning and winning solidly. Uh, moving to the Harold Matthews, where the Eels currently sit in seventh place. Just one win behind the ladder-leading Western Suburbs, Magpies and Canberra Raiders. So that's a very even competition right now. Going all the way down to ninth, where there's the, the final team with two wins. That's the Steelers, who obviously the Eels just took on. Uh, so a lot of... And where, the, where do the Dragons sit in that? The Dragons are sitting winless after three rounds, uh, alongside the Bears... And the Seagulls, and the Rabbitohs, and the Central Coast Roosters. So some teams are doing it tough in the Harold Matthews right now, uh, but that means that the rest of the ladder is very congested because of it. So a lot of uh, moving and shaking to do there. And then we move to the SG Ball, where the Parramatta Eels, well, they're one of four uh, undefeated teams, sorry, in this grade. Uh, obviously, all for share of first place. Eels do sit in third on four and against. Canberra Raiders with a plus 80 points differential lead the competition followed by the Western Suburbs Magpies, plus 76, Parramatta, plus 40, and the Penrith Panthers, plus 38. All three teams have three wins there, and you've got the likes of the Newcastle Knights, the New Zealand Warriors, and the Canary Bulldogs chasing them with two wins to their names. Uh, and they've all, oh no, except for the Warriors, they've uh, played for their full allotment of games, so the Warriors are undefeated on season two. But they haven't been credited with a bye, so I'm not sure what's happened there, whether their game had to be rescheduled or it was just... Uh, a translating error there and they did have a buy and uh it all three grades are top five are they still top uh, five with the expansion there because we've got 16 teams in ball we've got 15 teams in mats and we've got 13 teams in the gale so i can't remember if uh we're still top five uh it, and it was wasn't it top six top six sorry there top six so yeah. Top six makes sense in the Gale of 13 teams, but with the 15 and 16 team competitions, a bit rough for the teams that might miss out in a potential top six situation. Yeah, I think they go with that that top six because it makes the Brevi final brevity of the final series. Yeah. 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 And uh, I think that's a good place to wrap it all up. Good week for the junior rep 60s. 
got to keep it rolling next week, which we'll preview at the end of the week uh, as they take on the Dragons and Bears, depending on which grade it is. But that's a wrap on another episode. As always, thanks for stopping by and giving us a listen. Hope you enjoyed it. Hopefully you can get some confirmation on that potential Mitchell Moses re-signing in the coming days. Uh, hopefully before we record next time, actually. That'd be very nice. But until- and, uh, yeah, and don't forget that we'll be up there at Kellyville for the junior reps matches this Saturday. If you can't be there in person, then follow our live blog. Yes, sir. Beautiful way to wrap it up. Thanks for stopping by, guys. Catch you in the next episode. Go you wheels.